0: Um, so I'll just create a little gap just between that. Um, if there is if there's one question that the last 18 months has got us asking, it is, what is it that really matters? That as our whole lives have gone into upheaval, and in many of the times over the last 18 months, different lockdowns, etc., our lives have been stripped back significantly. We've had to ask, what is it that is really important? It turns out toilet paper is really important. We found that out. But as we hopefully are coming out now of the pandemic, and we are getting more and more freedom coming back and all of that, we have had time to reflect, haven't we? And I think almost consciously or subconsciously, all of us are asking this question of, what is it that, is that I really want to give my life to? What, what is it that I actually care most about? And what kind of life do I want to rebuild as life has kind of reset? And that's why I think that this teaching series that we're going into as we look at the book of Philippians is going to be really timely for us. Because this morning I want to introduce us to what I think is the primary thought of Paul as he's writing this letter to this church in Philippi. That he wants the church to live life pursuing the one thing that really matters. He wants the church to live a life of pursuing Jesus Christ. And for Paul, as he writes, we see this is not theory, this is not book work that he's engaging in, or just saying, this is what you should do, lofty ideal over there. No, Paul, as he writes this letter, is speaking from the heart. He's speaking from his own experience and saying, I have lived this life, and I am living this life of pursuing Jesus, and let me tell you, it is really worth it. And so today we're going to look at the first two verses of Philippians chapter one, and it will help us be introduced to the church itself in Philippi, um, into the the, the sort of cultural background it's in, uh, a little bit to Paul as the writer, and to some of the other themes of the letter. So I think it will really help us as we um, go into this series. It will be about a 12-week series over this term and into a little bit of the beginning of 2022. Isn't it wild that 2022 is nearly upon us? We were not ready for that. So Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 to 2, I'm going to read from the ESV. The words are on the screen right there, but do, do read along if you've got a Bible. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we get some facts right at the beginning of the the letter. It is Paul. He identifies himself as writing this letter, the Apostle Paul that we see, writing a lot of the New Testament and we read about in Acts. And he is writing to this church in a place called Philippi. And this is a church that Paul knows really well. In fact, this is a a church that Paul started himself. Now, I have been involved in exactly one church plant and starting one church, which obviously makes me a complete expert, but if there is one place that I would not want to plant a church, it would probably be somewhere like Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony, which meant that everything about Philippi was meant to look like the the center of the empire, the Roman empire, Rome itself, and so it was meant to, to match exactly all the things of Rome. But this was not just any Roman colony. This was hand-picked to be a Roman colony by the first ever emperor of Rome, a guy called Octavian, was later known as Caesar Augustus. He said, I want this place to be a Roman colony, and so I'm gonna make it happen all myself. And so this was not just a, a Roman colony, it was a Roman colony. And so everything about Rome was found in this place. And at this time, that meant regarding the emperor himself as a god, or at least a demigod, and so giving all of your life in worship to the emperor. Literally every single aspect of life revolved around and was centered around the fact you worship the emperor, and that was what life was. And so if they, the idea of planting a church into this area was essentially like, oh hi people of Philippi, I want you to literally stop Everything about your life. Stop doing it and start worshipping this God over here that you've never heard of before. Let me tell you about him. That was the prospect facing them as they went in. And it looks like Paul himself may have thought going there at this point was not the best idea. In Acts 16, where we read Paul planting this church, he wasn't really thinking about going to this place, it was not on his radar. But as he tried to go different places, the Holy Spirit stopped him. And then finally and suddenly, he got this vision in the night of a man from Macedonia, which is where Philippi was based. And he saw this vision. And it was a Macedonian man saying, come, come and help me. Come and plant a church here. It transpired. Which when I read that account again, I felt a little bit shortchanged, if I'm honest. That when Hannah and I were trying to work out, we'd received a call from God of where we're, that we're to go church planting and go to another city to, to start a church. We never got a man from Manchester appear to us in a vision. We never got Sir Alex Ferguson or Bez from Happy Monday shaking his maracas saying, come to Manchester. I didn't get any of that. Paul did. And so Paul went. And as soon as they arrived in Philippi, God got to work we read that he meets this woman called Lydia, and he opens her heart. It's not just that she heard the gospel. No, the Lord opened her heart and the heart of her household. And then after she, uh, after she was saved, they then started to get harassed by this young girl. And Paul discerns in the spirit she is afflicted by a demonic power. And so in a moment, he sets her free. And everything about her changes. In fact, it causes so much spiritual disruption in this place that they lock Paul and his companions up because they're robbed of all of their the money that they can make that this girl was making them. And so Paul and Silas and, and Timothy have only been there for a few minutes. They're in prison, and you think, surely this is the end of it. And then God orchestrates a jailbreak. They haven't even been there 24 hours. And an earthquake comes, the walls start shaking, the prison doors fly open. And then they start to escape. But they don't just escape, they also preach the gospel to the jailer and his household and they get saved. This was a church that Paul is writing to that was founded in the power of God. Prophecy led them there. The Lord opened up Lydia's heart. There was spiritual warfare going on. And God was literally breaking down walls. And a miniature revival broke out. Well, two households probably, probably can't really classify that as a revival. But despite all of the headline acts that were going on with the power of God, I think what is most remarkable about this church is who was actually left after all of that to start this church? Lydia and her household, a successful, wealthy businesswoman and her household, and a jailer. Probably from the slightly more rough and ready part of town, let's say. That was the team to plant this church. One day, I think, uh, Rev, we would love to plant some churches. I don't think these would be the criteria that we would be looking for. Essentially, the, the criteria would be, right, who has heard the gospel for the first time most recently, Right, off you go, you go and plant a church. They had just heard the gospel, and Paul's saying, right, now you found a church. And I wonder what that first Sunday meeting was like for them. Just sat there in Lydia's household. I can't imagine the small talk was particularly easy between the two, two people. Sitting there, just hoping that some more people might turn up to their small church plant, lots of lasagna in the oven, just waiting What is going on here? What have we signed up for? When you look at it from a human level, you think, surely this thing's just going to die off. Surely it hasn't got a chance. It's just this ragtag team, tiny thing in this hostile city against any other belief system, let alone a belief system that says you've got to leave everything else, you've got to leave all of your life and come and follow Jesus. And yet, Probably 10 or 12 years later, as Paul writes, this church is still going. But it's not just sort of clinging on, just about surviving. This church is flourishing. You read the letter of the Philippians, and the tone of it is just encouraging and positive. It sounds like Paul is talking here to a church that is established, it's healthy, it's thriving in a major city that is hostile to the gospel. In fact, this is one of Paul's most encouraging and positive letters that he writes in the whole of Scripture. There's no moments where he's just sort of tearing his hair out, saying, you believe what? You've started to do what? You're sleeping with who? There's none of that. Paul is encouraged and joyful about all that is going on in this church. And while we don't know exactly the details of how on earth did they get from humble beginnings, to put it politely, to where they are now, I think verse 1 gives us some real insight where Paul says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now, when I read that, you might think, that doesn't seem particularly noteworthy. But actually, if you start reading the rest of the verses that follow, it starts to become clearer. So he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, verse 1. Then verse 4, Thanking God in every prayer for you all. Verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about you all. You are all partakers with me of grace. Verse 8, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now this is the opening to Paul's letter to them. So at the moment what he's doing is he's greeting them and he's giving thanks for them. He's noting that which they already are. And saying, God, thank you for what you have done. And as he is doing that, he is constantly drawing attention to their collectiveness. Constantly drawing attention to the fact that there is a, if you like, an allness to them. Keeps using that word, you all. Against all the odds, this church hasn't just survived. It's not just grown numerically, but somehow they have become one. They are truly together. They're family. I think, how? How has this happened? Well, it's there in verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. That Paul is trying to draw them in and help them see this has only happened. You only have this unity. You're only together. You've only survived because of Christ Jesus at work in you, This same Christ Jesus that gave you, that the, the, the appeared in a vision and, and gave Paul the vision to come and plant in the first place. This same Christ Jesus that moved in supreme power to start saving people and break people out of jail and set people free. And this same Christ Jesus that started opening up hearts is the same Christ Jesus that has grown you and given you this unity and this togetherness. He's been with you the whole way forming them into a family and giving them unity so it's only worked out because of him just a moment to see how active jesus is in building and establishing his church that he starts it off in the most unlikely place most unlikely of people the most think this is this isn't going to work out this looks irresponsible jesus And he starts it off, and then out of nothing, he creates something. Something beautiful, something together. Of all of these different people. I mean, like it started off with a group of, how on earth are you ever going to get alongs? And it must have only continued to be that, as different people all joined the church, and Jesus drew them together. This same weekend, three years ago, is when we started meeting as a church. That was our beginning. In in a sense, it's our anniversary this this Sunday. And we started probably not quite as awkwardly as they did. We had 10 of us in a living room, and we knew each other a little bit. We didn't have quite the Lydia Jailer situation going on. But we were a small thing in a city that, as you all know, is not necessarily receptive to the gospel at all times. And how have we got here? How have we joined as a family? How have we grown? Only because of Christ Jesus. Only because he has been at work amongst us. Establishing us, speaking us into being, nurturing us, carrying us through. He's with us as we were singing in our worship time. Are active amongst us and building us up and it's this togetherness in Christ that Paul urges them to continue in and wants them to keep stepping into he's saying I want you to grow in even more unity than you have now this work that God has done so far he's only just starting and each time he says the, the unity that I want you to have can only happen in Christ At the end of chapter 1, he says, I want you to stand firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Beginning of chapter 2, he says, I want you to be of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. He's saying, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then one of the few times where he does have to bring a little bit of correction and gentle encouragement towards a different way, he says, I entreat you, Odia and Sintich, to agree in the Lord. He's saying to them, time and time again, there is greater depth and community and relationship for you to be able to share, but you will only find it, only find it in Christ Christ. There is a a desperate and deep longing in our society today for true community. For a place where we are welcomed, where we're known, where we're seen, where we're loved, where we're accepted just as we are. Where we can have a freedom to just be among people without any fear of being cancelled or being ghosted. And we don't have to try and put on a front or put on a mask, but we can just be. And if you don't believe me about this desire and this hunger for community, every single time you do an online shop at a supermarket, you will get an email saying, welcome to the Asda family. Whatever that is, we're all gonna exchange Christmas cards because we all shopped at Asda. It's not a family. But the word gets thrown around so much because there is this desperation that we all recognize. We want to be in community. But because we live in this secular society that's had so long of moving away from God, there's this, this desperation is here, but we just don't know where to to find it. So it falls to supermarkets to try and create it. But true family, true unity, it can only be found, only be found in Jesus Christ. And the other side of that, I think, is then so encouraging that, to have true unity and togetherness and community, we only need Jesus Christ. That as we start to think about home groups starting in just a couple of, uh, a couple of weeks, and you might be thinking on the, on the, the first night, like, oh, who's going to be there? Am I going to have people that I get on with? Are our personalities going to click? Is it going to be easy? Or is it going to be super awkward? Or what's it going to be like? Now, those things can be really important and helpful. But what we see here is the beauty of church is that we can be a right old mixed bag of people from all kinds of different walks of life, all kinds of different nations, cultures, expectations, personality types. But in Christ, we can have true family together and he will draw us and bind us together, forming thick family relationships that we cannot find, cannot find anywhere else. And I I just want to say, I know that we've got a few new students here and you've just moved to the city. And and maybe you're feeling this kind of longing and this this desire for community, maybe more than some of us, as you come to a a new place and you don't know anybody. And there's seemingly so many different options of where you might find it. Maybe the, the Frisbee club or the, I don't know, ping pong society or whatever it might be. And obviously those things are great as well. But here we see, where does true unity and community come from? comes... In him, it comes in his church. So whether it's here, whether it's elsewhere, I would just urge you, church is the place where you will find family. And so Paul is saying "Look, we can have true community. We can have it as much as we long for it, but it will only happen as we know him, as we as we follow him, as we look to him, as we pursue Jesus. And as we go through the letter, we will see just how much Paul wants us to look to Jesus, how much he wants our focus to be on him. In fact, we even see it in these first two verses. I wonder if you noticed it, if we could get it back on the screen again. Let me just read it again. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two verses, three times he mentions the name of Jesus Christ. And then as we continue, verse 4, he talks about the the day of Jesus Christ and the affection of Christ Jesus and righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. And I'll stop there because I could keep going all week, tracking through all that Paul says. You will notice this as you go through Philippians. All he wants to do, it seems, is talk about the name of Jesus. It's almost like the reason that he wrote the letter is he's just thinking, I just want to tell somebody how good Jesus is. I want to talk about him. I want to proclaim his name. I want to, to write about him. I wonder who will, uh, maybe my good buddies, the Philippians, will, won't mind me jotting a letter to them. He just wants to talk about him. And the extent to which this is the aim of his letter is right there in the first few verses, first few words of this letter where he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And this word servants that we have actually probably more literally should be translated as slaves. That's what your translation might have, slaves of Christ Jesus. And the slavery that Paul is talking here is uh, very different from the barbaric slavery practices that that might spring to mind for us uh, of our recent past, sadly nothing to do with that it was it was much more of a a common economic arrangement that they had for um for for employment in this day and so the significant thing as paul says i am a slave of christ jesus it's it's not got the same dehumanizing or imprisoning characteristics or connotations that we might associate with it and so the fact he's saying a slave isn't the thing that would have grabbed their attention, but the fact that he says that I am a slave of Christ Jesus is the significant thing. What he's doing is he's putting himself, Paul, and Christ Jesus next to one another and saying, I am a slave of him. And everybody that was listening to this or or reading this letter would have understood the connotations of what Paul was saying here, that when you put a slave and a master side by side in this culture, only one of those people matters. That when you put a slave next to his master, one of them is completely nameless, one of them is anonymous, one of them is insignificant, one of them is completely irrelevant and nothing. And it isn't the master. And it's this, is, this, is this that Paul is emphasizing when he says, I am a slave of Christ Jesus. If you think about their backstory, the Philippian church must have thought that Paul was an absolute rock star. I mean, they must have just thought, Paul heard, got a vision from God and he boldly came into our city to preach the gospel and he planted a church and he set that girl free and then he broke down prison walls and... And then as he was leaving, he didn't just think about escaping, but he preached the gospel and people got saved. What a legend this guy is. They must have loved Paul. They would have known their story. They probably talked about him a lot. And then the very first thing that Paul says is, I'm a slave. Don't look at me. I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. Whatever you think I have done, it's irrelevant, it's nothing. Look to him, look to the person, Jesus Christ. I am not worth any attention at all compared to him. Behold him, praise him, celebrate him, think that he is a hero, a legend. And this is not just rhetoric from Paul. If there is one thing that is clear from this letter, Paul loves the Philippian church, The Philippian church love him. There is deep affection in this letter. He uses the language of brothers and sisters throughout. He talks about them as beloved. He talks about yearning with all the affection of Christ Jesus for them. He loves them. And so because he loves them, he is drawing them into who he is and his heart. He's drawing them into the reality of who he is. Throughout the letter, there's decision-making and he's sharing with them some of his innermost thoughts. And so we get a real insight in this letter into the real Paul and what he was like as a now mature disciple, follower of Jesus, has done so much. We think, what is it that Paul is really like? When Paul gets gets started and gets talking and we see the reality of his heart, what spills out? Well, here we see the name of Christ Jesus. Through chapter 1 alone, 19 times he speaks the name of Jesus. But it's not just speaking about him. He includes some of his perhaps most well-known lines that you might know where. He's saying, I don't know whether I want to live or die, because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Basically saying, I want to live because I know living, I will be able to get hold of more of Jesus. But I know that when I die, I will be properly and fully united with him. And I don't know which to choose. Paul is obsessed with Jesus, and I think nowhere does that become more apparent than at the beginning of chapter 2, where it seems like he's giving them some mundane instructions of just saying, look, don't be conceited, don't grumble, basically he's just saying, look, could you just get along? Just make sure you get along, keep going together, get along, but then Out of nowhere, it just transitions seamlessly into what is the beating heart of the whole letter, where he starts to give us this most vivid portrait of who Jesus Christ is and all that this man that he loves, this God-man, represents that he just cannot help as he's giving them simple instructions but just break out and tell them about the majesty and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you why this man grabs the whole of my heart, monopolizes all of my attention. Can I just tell you about him? He cannot help but just break out in worship at the feet of his crucified and risen Savior in the midst of administrative instructions. Such is his love and heart for Jesus. And what's almost more remarkable is you might think at this point, surely Paul, he's he's done it all, he's seen it all, he's he's suffered a lot for Jesus, he's received beatings, he's gone through at least two shipwrecks at this point. And you think, he's gone through one shipwreck, might be time to call it a day, Paul, but he's been through two, and he's still going. And he's now in chains as he writes this letter under house arrest. And we might think, is this... Older man starting to perhaps just get a little bit cynical. I mean, I'm only 32 and I've noticed I've started to get a bit more cynical. a bit more angry at people using my bins, things like that. Or perhaps at least just lost some of his energy, some of his enthusiasm. But yet throughout the whole of chapter 3, we see he's lost none of his zeal and his passion for Jesus. Paul says, I want more of him. The language through chapter 3, he says, I'm pressing on to get hold of Jesus. So that By any means possible, I, I want to attain him. I want to know him. Pressing on towards the goal, the prize of where Jesus is taking him. And perhaps most notably, where he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. But if you want to crystallize the central idea of Paul's letter to the Philippians of, in fact, who Paul was as a man, this verse is pretty good. That He is essentially saying Jesus is worth knowing. Jesus has surpassing worth. He is worth more than anything else you could ever find. In fact, he is so much more valuable than anything else that everything else is worth leaving so that you can get him. And as I read that, even as I say it, I think, yes. Amen, Paul. You go for it. Preach it, brother. That is exactly right. Jesus is everything. We should go after him with all that we've got. And if I'm really honest with my own heart, and how I live I look at myself and think am I pursuing Jesus yeah I am but am I pursuing a bunch of other things yeah I am and I wonder if you can relate it's like yeah I'm pursuing Jesus but of course I'm also pursuing a fulfilling career because of course or yeah yeah I'm following Jesus but I'm also very much concerned by getting love and approval from my friends. Or, if you're anything like me, love and approval from random strangers that you meet on the street. Or, yeah, my life is all about Jesus, but I am kind of living for at the moment, finally getting to move out of this place and getting hold of that apartment in the northern quarter and all of the lifestyle that that might give me. And when we look at Paul, the only thing for him, the only consideration of his heart, was Jesus. I don't know about you, I find it it challenging, I find it provocative, but I also find it inspiring and captivating that this is what the life of a disciple can look like, and that we'll explore this as we go through the series of how did Paul get to this place, and what does this look like? Because as much as it tells us about discipleship, what it also tells us is just how captivating the person of Jesus really is and must be. That Paul just wanted to give everything to following him. Remember, Paul is just like us. Paul never walked on earth physically with Jesus side by side, and yet he has seen enough of him and he knows enough of him through the Spirit, through the scriptures through a life of following him and knowing him, to see him, and then see him a little bit more. And increasingly, as he gets drawn into Jesus, he, he sees him and he thinks, oh, I haven't, just, I haven't seen enough now. I'll go and do something else. Just constantly drawn in more and more and more to the reality and the person of Jesus Christ. And it comes through making Jesus, as we see at the end of verse 2, Lord, Lord of his life choosing to make himself a slave to Jesus. And I think this is going to be the thing that challenges us the most in this series. That Paul isn't saying, well, this was just a belief in my heart. These aren't just some ideas that he agreed to intellectually. Paul is saying, I am giving over the whole of myself, surrendering the whole of my being to Jesus Giving him the keys to my life and allowing him to have the final say on everything. And that is what his life looked like. And Paul longs for us and for the Philippian church to get drawn up into it. He says, Chapter 3, join in imitating me. He's saying, You can have this too. And this is the invitation that we have in Philippians. Do we want to go deeper? in our relationship and knowledge and love of Christ? Are we willing to make him the Lord of our life? Not just one thing that we're going after, but the authority in all things to give up everything in order to have him. Because Paul's testimony throughout this whole letter is, he really is worth it. From the outside looking in, Paul looks like he's a man that's lost everything. He's locked up in chains. He was out preaching the gospel, planting churches, doing signs and wonders, doing the lot. And now he's lost it all. Probably in Rome. And he knows that his allegiance to Jesus is about to cost him his life in a very short space of time. And yet, he speaks as a man in this letter who has everything. In letting go of everything that he had in Christ, he has managed to find everything. Everything he could ever want. This is a letter of joy. It's a letter of happiness. Paul constantly talking about the joy that he has, the joy the Philippian church can know, and the, the joy, complete joy at one point he talks about, that can be ours as believers and followers of Jesus. He's locked up, he's chained, he's about to die, and he's happy. He's happy in God. And alongside his joy, he speaks of contentment, very, very closely related, saying, in all things, in any and every circumstance, I have learned to be content in God content, happy, joyful. He talks of a peace that surpasses all understanding that can be ours in any and every circumstance, not through what we're going through, but coming to us beyond our understanding in God. And he speaks of the riches in glory in Christ Jesus that he has. His life is full and he wants the Philippians to know it and to see it. This is what life can look like. Following Jesus is hard in Philippi. Following Jesus is hard in Manchester. It's costly. They probably weren't facing outright persecution, might get killed, might get locked up, but it cost them a lot. They missed out on jobs. It's hard to make a good living not worshipping the emperor. It was hard. You were rejected by society. You were thought it was weird. You were looked upon with suspicion. A Lot of parallels with 21st century Manchester. But Paul would say to them what he says to us, he is worth it. This life is worth it. And it leaves us, I think, with a tantalizing question. What if, what if it really was this simple? That while we're perhaps running around anxiously trying to find the perfect, unique combination for our life of location and housing and friendship group and partner and kitchen tile design and Instagram profile picture and eyebrow shape and school for your kids and all of those things that we think, this will finally make me happy. What if actually the joyful, content, peaceful, full, rich life is simply found? in making him Lord and pursuing him with all we have. Nat, do you want to just come up and we'll make some space to respond. This is the grace that Paul talks about at the beginning of verse 2. The gift of God, that he has not come to take our life away. He has come to give us his life. Not come to empty us, but he's come to fill us up with the fullness of his life. That the the more that we can say, Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I will make you Lord. The more we will find the life that we long for, the community that we long for, the family that we long for, the joy that we long for, the contentment that we long for, the peace, the riches, the fullness of life that we long for. So just as we finish, at the beginning of the series, I just want to invite you to...